hearts acceptable in your sight. God, our rock and our redeemer. You know, the best meal I ever had uh, was not in Houston. Uh, And it wasn't even in a fancy restaurant. I remember when I was 16, I went on a canoe-slash-hike trip up in the woods of Maine on Flagstaff Lake. And uh, at one point during the trip, we had to switch from hiking uh, to canoeing. And during that switch, it was a long day. We had to hike, and then we had to pack our packs, and then we had to canoe. It turned out a very long way, and I was a very big go-getter, so I was canoeing pretty hard the entire time. We had to do a portage at one point, and by the time we got to the end of the day and to our campsite, and that food was being cooked, oof, that pasta and that tomato sauce out of a can... Carefully prepared over that little flame. It was so good. I was famished. And that food hit the spot. You know, I tried, uh, I tried fasting for Lent once. Um, I grew up not Roman Catholic, so it was never a thing to like give up chocolate or, uh, or give up watching cartoons in the morning or whatever people uh, have given up over the time. No, I, I, I decided at one point, this is just after college, that I was going to do a Ramadan-style fast uh, for Lent to make it a real fasting experience. So I uh, you know, made a goal not to eat uh, during any of the daylight hours. Um, now, I did not do full Ramadan because I did drink liquid. Uh, I did drink water during that time, but it was no, no food. And I lasted about a week. And it got to a point where after about a week, I, I sort of sat back. And, of course, I was never up early enough to eat breakfast before dawn. So I wouldn't eat anything until about 7 or 8 at night. And when you're working out every day and trying to do writing and trying to do some other things, I just was in the middle of the day and I just couldn't focus. And I was like, what's the point of this? I, I really didn't get it. You know, uh, so I said that. Forget that. Uh, and I'm not very good at dieting either. I'll just put that out there. That's one of the downsides of having a very high metabolism. You don't learn to, uh, <laughs> to be able to resist food. That's why I, I resonate with that Oscar Wilde quotation uh, that I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> now, I'm not generally someone... Uh, who I think is overfilled with pride, uh, generally. Um, And I remember, but but maybe there's a time for us to to at least be proud of who we are now and again, uh, proud of our accomplishments. I remember back in 2010, this was my third year uh, working as a chaplain at Harvard. And when I started working there, uh, I I said, well, I'll give myself three or four years and see what other options exist. So this is in the winter of my third year. I put together our profile, the UCC profile, and I sent it around uh, to churches. I remember calling up the associate conference minister, the suffragan bishop for Connecticut, and uh, suffragan bishop equivalent uh, for Connecticut. <clears throat> and I was asking her about the churches that were looking for jobs in her area. And she was like, you know, John, you really should go to a church and work as an associate minister before you go look for a job in one of these churches. And I remember hanging up the phone and being so angry because I was like, the church I work at, as if you're an associate minister, you preach on average once a month. And where I was working, I was preaching three to four times a month. 
Um, I had started a worship service from scratch. Uh, I had expanded the sort of student uh, involvement fivefold. Uh, I, was, I knew more students than almost anyone else on the entire campus. I was advising the seminarians every week. I was like, what else? I mean, I, I organized conferences and lecture series. It's like way more than an average associate would do. And yet, when I looked back over my profile, I realized I just hadn't actually articulated what I had done very well. You know, I was like, I was a little bit too, too timid about putting that out there. Are there things that you uh, like to take pride in? I remember my father in the mid-1990s, he, uh, uh, he bought an E-Class Mercedes-Benz. And uh, my father was not a particularly materialistic person, but I remember him saying at one point, he said it had always been a dream of his when he was a kid to own a Mercedes-Benz. And he said he promised himself he would only buy it when he knew that he could really afford it. He was never going to stretch in order to do that. And so when he bought that, you could tell he was just, he was very proud of that car. Not because of the car itself, because of what it represented to him. Sense of pride. When I was a little kid, uh, I loved, uh, and maybe this is me growing up in the Reagan era, but I loved military hardware. I memorized basically every ship in the U.S. Navy. You, you, you could give me a bow number, and I could tell you something about that ship in the U.S. Navy. Uh, what class it was, uh, the size, the length, its armaments. Uh, I was extremely well-versed on the nuclear arsenal of the United States. Um, I remember being disappointed when I found out that the Pershing II missile was being decommissioned because it's such an impressive piece of uh, military hardware. And looking back on it, I was like, well, what was I so fascinated with? It's like I was fascinated with the power of it, just the raw power. Power has a real draw. There was something about these weapons that... It's like, it's, I think it's probably the same reason why I loved ancient Rome when I was in school. Great power to it. Or, you know, why, why people like to go watch the TV show Billionaires. Billionaire. Have you ever seen that show on Showtime? My brother's obsessed with it. It's about a hedge fund manager in New York who's a billionaire. And it's fascinating. Here is just raw power right there. This guy can do whatever he wants. Exciting. You know, I, part of me is not really sure what the big deal is of the passage for this morning. I mean, we're good liberal Christians. We don't believe that the devil exists, right? No devil. No, and, and, and generally, some of the temptations seem reasonable. I mean, we're famished to have some food. That's not that big a deal to have food in the wilderness. For Jesus just to admit who he is, take pride in who he is, uh, doesn't seem like that big a deal. Jesus has all the power over things. You know, that would probably allow him to do a lot of good, right? Now, there's that instinct of, okay, you know, this passage seems good, but I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't really keep that, that firm a Lent, so what's the point of it to me? In the uh, 1960s, there was a Stanford uh, psychologist named Walter Mischel. Uh, and he did a very famous uh, study, psychological study, involving marshmallows and little kids. Uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. Uh, it's a pretty famous study. Uh, what he did was he was fascinated by uh, how well these kids were able to resist the temptation to eat a marshmallow. So uh, he got a, these little kids, early elementary school. And those of you who have early elementary school kids can probably resonate with this. Early elementary school kids would bring them into a room and put like a marshmallow or some other thing they really liked in front of them and say, okay, here's a marshmallow. Now, I'm going to leave. And in 15 minutes, if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you a second marshmallow. So they'd leave the room and watch what the kid did. 
And again, they did this for like 600 plus kids to see what the, what, what, how the kids reacted. And some kids, again, immediately as soon as the person left the room, ate the marshmallow. Uh, others waited the full 15 minutes and indeed were rewarded with a second marshmallow. Uh, some, according to researchers, even like looked at the marshmallows and like petted them lovingly <laughs> before they ate them. Now, the, the researcher then, of course, tracked these, uh, these elementary school students later in life. And without fail, the, there was a direct correlation, a one-to-one correlation between the length of time that a kid was able to resist eating that marshmallow and the success uh, that that kid had later in life. A one-to-one correspondence. That if I was a little kid, you could resist eating a marshmallow. The person had higher SAT scores, uh, had better grades in school, uh, generally had a, a sort of more uh, firm relationships, was flourishing, and whatever, whatever metric they used, uh, they found that the longer that those kids were able to resist eating that marshmallow, the better off they were. Resistance to temptation might matter. Hot. You know, when, I, when you sit there and you watch the uh, TV commercials at night, or uh, the TV commercials at the evening news, I always love watching evening news because the, the TV commercials are clearly not directed at me. <laughs> it generally aren't. Uh, there's lots of you know, prescription drug ads, um, usually for statin medications, sometimes ED medications. Uh, and then they're always, in- inevitably, they're ads on investing. And have you invested enough for your retirement? And what they always say about investing is the earlier you do it, the better off you are. I mean, the, there's this miracle of compound interest. Turns out those people who actually can resist, say, buying that extra thing or going on that extra vacation, um, those people who actually can save well when you're younger actually do, you know, do better later, are able to have this you know, retirement where they can have a lot of freedom. Resisting those temptations seems to make an impact. When I worked at a consulting firm over the summer as an intern, who were the interns that were given the offer at the end of the summer? The interns who all stayed later than they had to. Those are the ones who got the offers. Your ability to resist the temptation, go do what you want with your time, but put in more effort in, say, your work, especially when you're in your 20s and 30s, oftentimes that pays off. Who were the students who did best in school? Those who would sneak away and watch TV at their first opportunity? Or those who spent the extra time studying? The same is true, I'd say, with relationships. A lot of times, you know, we'd rather just go do our own thing rather than investing time in our relationships with others. Someone you might know needs a hand, needs a help, needs something. The temptation is to say, you know what, I'd rather go binge Netflix. But when you make the investment in those relationships, who do you think is happier in the long run? Okay, so I, I, resisting temptation, I can see why that would be valuable. Um, but it's one thing to say it. How actually do you do it? See these marshmallows. How do I train myself not to eat the marshmallow? This is where the passage that we have for this morning, I, I wish had more details in it. You know, this is so often the case. You read the biblical passage and you're like, gosh, I, I wish the author had left out so much stuff. We don't find the inside story of Jesus' struggle here. And if you've ever read uh, Nico Kazanstakis' book, The Last Temptation of Christ, or watched the movie based upon it, he writes an entire book and, and this entire movie is made just off, off this one thing. 
how Jesus resists temptation. And Kazatakis actually says, like, Jesus really struggled with this. And again, he's very vivid in this epic struggles with temptation. It's an entertaining book and movie, but the problem is I don't really see that struggle in this text. Back, and I did some more thinking about this this last week. When do, when do I eat, for instance, the least healthy? When do you eat the least healthy foods? With me, it's always when I'm stressed. It's funny. I can spend all the time dieting that I want. It doesn't make that much of a difference. If I'm not that stressed, I'm working out every day, I'm eating healthy, everything's great. When I'm stressed, I'm like, where is that Big Mac? I would love it. This sounds a little, sounds a little dark, but uh, what's, the, uh, what, what's the most effective way to torture somebody? You know, they did in the mid-20th century, these totalitarian regimes were doing all this research on how you torture someone most effectively. They got pretty good at it. Uh, most effective way to torture someone? Not cause pain. Just deny them sleep. You can deny someone sleep for three or four days, they will tell you anything, no matter who they are. It's the single easiest way to break anyone. It shows how important sleep actually is. You want to resist temptation when you haven't slept? That chance. You know, when, I, when the whole 2008 financial crisis came around, I was like one of the least surprised people in the United States. I know some people were like, oh my goodness, we never saw this coming. I was like, how did you not see this coming? Uh, my perspective was a little different than... Some because I saw all my friends going off to Wall Street from college. Um, a huge percentage of my graduating class and the graduating classes around me went to go work on Wall Street. And so I knew what their lives were like. They were working 100 hours a week. Have you ever worked 100 hours a week at the office? Every week, week in and week out? I knew people who were the most dedicated, most hardworking, being absolutely you know, smashed their heads into the ground. My brother was working at J.P. Morgan as an associate just at the time of the crisis. His wife hates that period. She still does not like Manhattan because of the time that they spent there. It was so intense. Now, when you're working that hard, when you have nothing in your life other than earning money and you're doing this to earn as much as possible, what kind of ethical decisions do you make? It doesn't doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. I remember when I interned in a broker's trading firm one summer, summer after my sophomore year. I'll never forget going down to the New York Stock Exchange floor and this is one of the things we did as an intern. I remember going to the New York Stock Exchange floor. We were in the, uh, the trading booth. And the traders had underneath their desk, they had these you know, uh, books for uh, fancy new cars. And they were talking about what, what, the, what the next car they were going to buy is. The reason why they were there was to earn money to buy a new car. That was it. That was their motivating factor. And the bigger their car, the better they felt. It's such a surprise that people would cheat the system when you're working 100 hours a week and... That's your, motive, that, that, that's your motivation? Those people who brag the most or who tend to lord their power over others. Those are the people with not, not that much self-confidence. Those are the people that tend to be the most... Uh, This is where I come back to Jesus. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. Imagine spending 40 days alone just thinking. We're lucky if we get a half an hour a day 
alone, just thinking. Imagine 40 days, 24 hours a day, alone, just thinking. When I see this text about Jesus and the temptations, I'm like, I'm not surprised he was able to resist them. He had 40 days to sit there and think, what are my priorities in life? What do I care about? What are my regrets? How do I be the best person I can? How do I follow God as best I can? And when temptation comes, I I think he was able to handle the temptation because he was in a place where he was ready for it. It's no surprise that this is how he starts his ministry. He goes into the wilderness immediately after baptism. Now we are entering today, or at least last Wednesday technically, uh, the season of Lent. Now for Lent, as, I, as you can probably guess, I've never been really that big on giving things up for Lent. I don't think it brings me any closer to God or brings me any spiritual depth or fulfillment. But I do think that Lent would be a good time to sit and think about our priorities. Use this time set aside, as Jesus did, to think, okay, where am I falling short in life and how can I do better about it? To be intentional about that process during these 40 days. It's one of the few times that the Christian year sets aside specifically for introspection. Specifically for some sort of finding a deeper spiritual depth. Where can you find that in these next 40 days? Can you be better about resisting the temptations that actually make a difference in your life? And I can, I think it would be a Lent well-observed.